0: It was good if you got the notes from last week go ahead and keep them because they're different this week um what's that yeah it's it's funny i didn't feel real good about the notes last week because i thought i spent way too much time on just three verses and uh because a lot of it was rehash of stuff we'd already done so i feel like the lord is gracious to you Um, she didn't have to sit through that, so instead of doing three verses, we're going to do about 20 verses today, um, because it all ties together, but in order to keep it to four pages, I couldn't print the verses in the notes, which I normally do, so I cheated. Uh, so you have to have your Bible today, or your phone, whichever you use, and, um, We'll just read these passages as we go along, and um, it's the, the last song we just sang. Really, is the antithesis of what the people in Galatia were doing. Uh, they were living a life that said Jesus wasn't enough; that there had to be more. There was something more required of us than just faith than just operating in God's grace, that these Gentiles had to be Jews. And so basically what this entire um, letter is about is to give us assurance that what we received when we asked Jesus to come into our heart was enough. Um, It doesn't require anything besides faith and living a life of righteousness so i'm um, i want to jump right in because this is a conversation back and forth it, it, it would be as if um, you grew up in one church under one teacher for 15 years and then that teacher leaves and goes and plants a church somewhere else and somebody comes in behind him and teaches a whole new thing And so the original teacher hears about it and says, I've got to fix this, but I can't go back to all those churches. Galatia had a lot of churches. So let me write a letter that covers everything to all of them, and let me address all of the issues. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's addressing everything he's heard that the Judaizers have put upon the people of the region of Galatia. And again, understand that... The Judaizers never argued who Jesus was, never argued that salvation required faith and accepting the work of the cross. But what they did was they added to it. In other words, you had to be saved, but you had to be Jewish, too, in order to be saved. And the only way you could be Jewish is to live as the Jews have always lived, which the Jews, by the way, didn't do a very good job living as Jews. Um, they, They lived more like heathens. And they did Jews. So jumping right into this, let's look at chapter 3, verse 15, the book of Galatians. It says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. So when he's saying this, he's saying I'm speaking to you now um, in an understanding of the way that men think and the understanding of the way the world operates. So I'm speaking to you in the matter of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, No one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to your seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So Paul's saying, I want to give you a human analogy here, and what he's talking about when when he's talking about these uh, covenants, He's talking in the context of of what we would call a will. Um, It's very important for us, for us as parents, it's very important for us to have a living trust, to have a will, to have something put into place, that something happened to us, that our inheritance would be determined by us where it would go as opposed to um, the courts stepping in or the state of California stepping in, taking all of it and giving nothing to our heirs. So Paul is saying just as it is with a, with a living trust or just as it is with a will, um, no one can add to it or change it, take away from it once the conditions have been met. And the reality of the conditions of a living trust or, or will being met is that the person who wrote it has to die, something has to happen. And so once that happens, um, you can't change it. And that's why you have what are called contested wills. That's people go to court and they try to change it, but in most cases they can't, because this is the last will and testament, this is the living trust, this is the wishes of the person whose inheritance you're receiving. So Paul is saying, Look, it God made a covenant with Abraham. 430 years later, he gave Moses the law. The law did not annul the promise given to Abraham. In other words, if what God gave to Abraham was a living trust, then the enforcement or the fulfillment of that covenant, of that will, did not change when God gave the law to Moses. If God was saying that men earn their way to blessing by the works of the law, then Abraham's covenant would be void because Abraham didn't have the law. So that would mean all the promises God made to Abraham about the stars of the sky and about his his, his offspring and about the nation, that would be void because there was no law. And God added stipulations so if God added stipulations so people could supplement their faith with works, the promise of Abraham is void. And so Paul's arguing to these Judaizers who are trying to make Gentiles become Jews. He's saying that the law is a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant. The law was a restatement of what God had already promised to Abraham. And it's being applied in a new state of redemptive history, which is Jesus. And so what he says is this. It's not a nullification. It's, it's not a basic alteration. In other words, the law didn't change part of it or some part of it or, or part of it becomes null and void. Everything God promised to Abraham was fulfilled in the law that God gave to Moses. So both the covenants and the promises of God's blessing by grace The same thing is true for Abraham. It was counted unto him as righteousness because he was a man of faith. Everything that is given to us is not based upon our works. It's based upon our faith, who we believe in, who we trust, what we believe about the word God, word of God. So in both covenants, the only way to attain blessing from God was to trust him and to trust his grace. Because here's the reality, if there's no grace, then you and I are sunk. Because the law would require something of us we could never fulfill. That was part of the frustration for the children of Israel was this having to constantly check every action in their life and measure it against the law. And the law depends on a life of faith, not just a single act. And I say that to say, because there are many people who believe today that once you say, quote unquote, the sinner's prayer, it's all done. All I have to do is confess with my mouth the lordship of Jesus Christ and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, and I'm saved, and now I can just keep living my life. It's kind of like a fire insurance policy. And that's not a life of faith, that that really becomes a life of false grace because you, you don't take serious the price that was paid for your salvation. So both covenants, it's faith that saves. It's faith that taps into God's power in such a way that we become obedient. It's not legalistic works of law. Look at, I have got caught up in times in my life, even as a pastor, thinking if I work harder and I do more, I become God's shining child, you know, and it's not like that at all. There's nothing more I can do to what Jesus has already done. So it's not works, but it's spirit-empowered obedience by faith. Our life, our walk with God is based upon not how hard we work, but how well we obey. Let me say it again. Your salvation, your walk with God is not based upon how hard you work. It's based upon how well you obey. Jesus already did all the work. Jesus already paid everything that could be paid for your sin. Jesus already did everything that makes salvation possible. There's nothing more you can do to make yourself more saved. If you're saved, you're saved. However, our life is to be a testimony of that salvation our life is to be a reflection of the transformation of our heart because of our faith by grace knowing that we are saved so moses saw the law is simply a restatement of the conditions of the abrahamic covenant in other words moses didn't at any time think okay I have the law now, what God promised to Abraham is null and void. Now I'm going to live and walk under the law. Moses always saw the law as a fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is the Lord speaking to, to Abraham. Because you hearken to these ordinances and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep you with the covenant and the steadfast love which he swore to your fathers to keep he will love you bless you and multiply you so God's saying to Moses Moses in turn tells the children of Israel that look it, because we keep God's covenant this new covenant and the steadfast love love which he swore to our fathers who whenever they talk about their fathers they're talking about Abraham Isaac and Jacob so, whenever they talk about the promises, swore to our fathers, they're talking about those three. God made promises to them, the same promise, the same covenant, and it said, because of his love, if we keep his commands, that covenant is fulfilled in us. And so the two are not incongruent, the two are actually working together as the same. So, for Moses, the Mount Sinai covenant was a reaffirmation and spelling out of the covenant that God had already made with Abraham. Faith as evidenced in its fruit was the requirement of both covenants. The, to keep the law that God gave Moses required faith. To walk in the promise that God gave Abraham required faith. Keeping the law, walking in the covenant, both required the same faith. They were both promises given by the same God. So Paul is right when he says the law of Moses and the covenant ratified with Abraham are in perfect harmony. The law and the uh, covenant do not void or nullify each other. And the reason Paul is saying this is because the Judaizers are telling these believers that their salvation requires something more than what was already promised and so when paul even though paul is talking to gentiles the reason he's addressing them as if they were jews is because remember he's already said because of your righteousness you are considered to be the offspring of abraham plus he's using the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses because it is Jews who are challenging the salvation of the Gentiles and so Paul is using logic and reason for the Judaizers at the same time teaching these Gentile followers of Christ how what the Judaizers are telling them is not true and how salvation through Christ is sufficient through faith so when Paul goes on, then, there are four things that qualify Christ to be the offspring or seed of Abraham. And so Paul takes a moment here and he, he says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. So now Paul wants the Judaizers as well as the Galatians to understand that the seed of Abraham promised to the covenant, the promise of the seed was passed down to one seed, and that is Christ. And that all of the promises given to Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus. The promises to Israel. And again, because of righteousness and because of our faith, we are considered to be, and I've already taught this, and, and it states it again. So we'll, we'll go over it again, I think it's in, verse, in, in chapter 4 or maybe it's in verse 23 of chapter, uh, I'll get to it in a moment. But it says, it's in verse 29 of chapter three, it says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, we've already affirmed that, we've already gone over that. And so Paul's reaffirming it and he's saying this, there's four things that qualify Jesus to be called the offspring or the seed of Abraham. First of all, he's a Jew in the strict physical sense. And you can trace the parentage of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Number two, he lived the life of faith, which according to Galatians 3.7 was a qualification to be a son of Abraham. Listen to verse 7 says, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So Jesus fulfilled that requirement. Being a man of faith Being a Jew, he was a son of Abraham. The third thing is the death and resurrection of God's son atoned for sin and purchased blessing, a promise to Abraham's descendants. So all the promises God gave to Abraham could only be fully fulfilled through Jesus. Um, and, and because the promise of inheritance to be children of God was fulfilled through Jesus. And finally, only by belonging to him can any Jew or Gentile become a true child of Abraham and heir of the promise. Again, Galatians 3:29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we became descendants of Abraham and heirs of the promise only, only because we belong to Jesus. Because we belong to Jesus, that promise, and you can go read the Abrahamic Covenant, that promise given to Abraham is, is passed down to his offspring, who is Jesus, and because we are adopted sons and daughters of, of God, we too are the same heirs, have the same inheritance that Jesus has. So the promise of the inheritance made to Abraham and his offspring was fulfilled by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul knew that offspring or seed in its singular form, not just referred to one person but also referred to many people. It would be this. My kids and my grandkids, they are not my seeds, they are the seed of the McDonald lineage. There's not many seeds, there's one. It is that heritage, it is that genetic, it is that DNA. It's the same thing with spiritual DNA, one seed Includes all of the offspring. So the seed of Abraham is Jesus, and because we are adopted sons and daughters of God, we are part of that seed through salvation. So in Genesis, the word offspring or seed is used to refer not only to all the children of Abraham, but to the one who is promised. Now understand this Abraham had how many sons? Abraham had two sons. Isaac and Ishmael, okay, with Sarah, I mean, with that promise, okay? The promise given to Abraham's seed only went to Isaac. It didn't go to Ishmael. Those who argue that they're of, that Abraham is their father, in physical sense, yes, but the promise of inheritance given to the seed of Abraham passes only through Isaac, even though Abraham fathered, is understanding of the word offspring, Isaac. And that's the, that, that is the understanding of the word offspring, is that in the Old Testament context, it, it references a limited offspring whose offspring becomes the seed of that limited one. So we learn from Scripture that Messiah is coming through the seed of the offspring. Of Abraham. So Jesus could not come through the seed of Ishmael and come through the seed of Isaac. He could only come through the seed of one of them. He came through the seed of Isaac, which was which is the seed of Abraham. And so Jesus is the promise, and without the promise of Jesus, we cannot receive the inheritance that was promised to Abraham. And again, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul is making this clear that Christians, Gentiles, who accept Christ as Savior, have already received the inheritance promised to Abraham. They don't have to circumcise themselves. They don't have to follow all the feasts. They don't have to keep all the laws in order to receive the promise of Abraham because Jesus is the fulfillment of of all the promises of the covenant God gave to Abraham. And if we are Christ, then we are the seed of Abraham, and then we are heirs of the promise. And Paul says this over and over and over. And the reason I think he does is for some reason we forget it very quickly. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember where our inheritance comes from. So Christ Jesus wouldn't be needed if the inheritance had already been obtained. In other words, God gave the inheritance salvation to Abraham by promise, namely Jesus. And we already studied this when we did Galatians 2. Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. So if salvation was already taken care of through the law, the fulfillment of the promise was through the law only, then Jesus died in vain. Now, there are still people today who believe you have to do or you can do something more um, than what Jesus has already done. There are many prayers and saints that Catholics pray to that Causes them to believe that they can do more for someone's already died. Um, we saw uh, something the other day. Someone was praying the prayer of Saint Marguerite. Huh? Oh, Saint Gertrude. That's right. How could I forget Gertrude? Um, but this prayer is a prayer that you go to the cemeteries and you pray over your dead relatives. And if you pray it a certain way, and if you pray it so many times, and you say, say Hail Mary's in the middle of it with the rosary beads, you can cut off years of their bondage in purgatory so they get released into heaven faster. You can free a thousand. So that's how confusing it is, and that's how ridiculous it is. Jesus did it all. There's nothing more that can be done. It's our responsibility. We can't pray somebody out of their destiny after they've already died. They've sealed their destiny by what they do or what they don't believe in. And so if Jesus, if, if the law was sufficient to fulfill the covenant of Abraham, then Paul says Jesus died in vain. It's like years ago, it was about 2009. When we were working on the movie, I went to this convent in New York. We'd go there often because they were the sisters of life and they were rescuing pregnant girls. And the head sister in this, in this convent was, was really young. She was like 28 years old. And we got into this discussion on how she believed that just before, when you stand at judgment and just before God passes judgment on you, he gives you one more chance to repent. And i asked her i said well then why did jesus have to die i mean who in their right mind when they're standing about to be cast into the lake of fire is going to say i don't want heaven i want hell and so what that does is that nullifies everything jesus has done it nullifies everything scripture says paul is saying there is only one fulfillment of the covenant and the promise of abraham It's Christ. And the way that we receive that covenant promise is by faith in Christ. And when we accept who Jesus is by faith and what he did by faith, we become the seed of Abraham and we become heirs of the promise God gave to Abraham. And so as we jump down to verses 23 through 29, um, I'm skipping 19 through 22 because I covered that already in another teaching. Um, But beginning of verse 23 says, but before faith came, um, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So there's four steps here in, in Paul's thoughts in these verses. Step number one, um, people before Jesus, people were held captive under the law. Um, he says, before you came to faith, you were kept under guard. Or another word, in, uh, when, when you read it in the ESV, it says you were kept under a custodian. And the picture here is this, that young Jewish children, young Jewish boys, had a custodian that was responsible to teach them the law, to keep them in the law until they reached the age of accountability, at which time they would be responsible for their own choices. But up until that moment, there was somebody there to tell them what or factions and to make sure they kept the law and they walked the law. And, you know, there are different sects or factions of Judaism, and, you know, some Some you have to read the Bible all day, all day, all day, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, you sleep, you get up the next day, and that's what your life is, reading the first five books of the Bible over and over and over. And so the guardian was the servant of the family responsible to watch over the son from nursery to manhood. The custodian doesn't have the power to make the child's heart good or to give the child his inheritance. So... The law for the children of Israel was the guardian. So Paul is comparing the guardian to the law. So just as the guardian was responsible to make sure to watch over the sun from childhood to manhood, the law for Israel provided direction and restraint to help them walk in mature behavior. So God said, look it. You've come out of all these years of captivity in Egypt. You've picked up, I mean, you're multiple generations coming out. You've picked up culture. You've picked up practices. You've picked up religions. You've picked up all kinds of practices that I'm going to put an end to. And now I'm going to give you one set of rules, the law by which you are to live. And the law was more than the Ten Commandments. The law was also how to sacrifice animals for sin on cleanness and uncleanness a whole set of statutes and that law became the custodian over the children of israel just as there was custodian over a child from childhood to manhood once they became a man there was no longer a custodian paul is saying that for israel the law was a custodian until jesus showed up when jesus showed up there was no longer the need for the law because jesus fulfilled the law Yes. my brother passed away time and the Lord. And she days, rosary to And after she she Yeah. It's, it's crazy things people do. But, and here's the reason why the law didn't benefit Israel the way that it could, because it wasn't met with faith. The thing that enacts the fulfillment of the promise in our life, again, verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise And it's by faith we become sons of God. This is what it says in Hebrews. It says, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. So even the writer of Hebrews is saying the problem with the law, the reason the children of Israel, the law could never keep them is because they never had faith They never believed. Faith is the mark of maturity that was prescribed by the law. So the law kept Israel under restraint until faith came. You get that? So the law was the custodian, just as there was a a keeper of the children until they reached adulthood. The law was the custodian until the time came when Israel could enact their their receiving of the covenant in faith and not by law. The law instructed youthful Israel as a child how to live a life of faith under the merciful promises of God. So Israel's response was, by and large, if we're looking at his children, they were adolescent rebels. Israel rebelled against the law over and over and over and over and over. There was this ebb and flow. Every now and then, we'd get a righteous king show up, and Israel would repent, and for a short while, they'd repent, and then, boom, they'd be back in it. And, and the last time until the day when God began to take away the blindness, and, and he will give them a heart to trust him. And this is part of the prophecy. The last time that Israel went into captivity was not 400 years. It was 70 years. And that was under the Babylonian rule, under the four kings, And this Jeremiah was the prophet who kept coming and warning them and telling them, look, if you don't get your act together, Babylon's going to come and going to take you captive, and you're going to go through this whole thing all over again. And the king of Israel kept saying, that's not so, because Egypt is our ally, and Egypt would never let the Babylonians come and destroy us. The king of Israel didn't realize that the Babylonians had already destroyed Egypt. The Babylonians had already conquered them. They were on their way to Israel, and and each time they were given a chance to repent, and they didn't. Jeremiah said, "Okay, if you repented, then this would have been you're still going to be punished. But this would have been your punishment. But because you haven't repented, this will be your punishment. And because you haven't repented, this will be your punishment. And so Jeremiah says this: that after they go through all of that, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord." And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And and we do see a process of this kind of, but again, Israel doesn't give her whole heart to God until Jesus shows up. And then they give their whole heart to God by believing in faith that Christ is the Messiah and the promises of Abraham, the covenant and the fulfillment of the law have come to completion by faith in Jesus. And so the law still works that way today for the children of Israel. If you don't have a heart to trust God, you rely on mercy, and the law is gonna feel like a harsh guardian. And, and if you know there are Jews that are constantly under condemnation they're constantly trying to pray more, read the scriptures more, do more to somehow escape the harshness of the law. The other way that Israel tried to escape the harshness of the law was that the spirit, the, 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 sad, the, the Sanhedrin, who is the Sadducees and Pharisees, were constantly writing new laws to interpret the law to make it more comfortable for them. And so they changed the law as they went along, knowing that they couldn't get in. And in the process, they added laws. You know, when when they came to Jesus and said, you know, your disciples are not keeping the law because they're not washing their hands before they eat this grain they took. That wasn't part of the law. That was something they added on later. And Jesus addressed them on that issue. So if, if you do have a heart to trust God and rely on his mercy, the law feels like, meds from a living, loving physician. In other words, to say thou shalt not covet, that feels like, if, if you don't have grace, that feels like, how can you not covet? Somebody's always got something I want. Somebody's always got something better. I always want a better job. I always want a bigger paycheck. I always want a better meal. I always want a bigger car. I always want a better house. How, how can I not covet? But under grace, we know that his grace is sufficient and my God supplies all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And our eyes are no longer set upon what we don't have. Our eyes are set upon who we have and how he provides for us. And so um, what, what the law is for you depends on what you are toward the lawgiver. This is what John says. This is the love of God. That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not. There was to have a relationship. Now, if the law was just all there was to have a relationship with God, they would be burdensome. But because God loved us and gave Jesus to fulfill the law and said, You now have a relationship with me through my son who fulfilled the law, he didn't remove it, he fulfilled it. Since Jesus fulfilled the law and you know how fellowship with me through my son, the law is fulfilled. And because the law is fulfilled, <clears throat> the covenant is also fulfilled. And because you have accepted the work of Christ by faith, you not only receive grace, but you also receive the benefits of the promise of inheritance that was given to Abraham. The law couldn't do that. Only faith in Jesus can. So because faith has come, we're no longer under a custodian. We're no longer under this beating down of the law. So what does he mean when he says faith has come? Now, if you read Hebrews 11, it it gives us a hall of fame of people of faith who, listen closely, lived under the law. Every one of those people mentioned in hebrews even calls noah an evangelist i mean all of those people mentioned in the hall of fame of faith counted his righteousness every single one of them lived under the law but paul doesn't mean that no one had faith or justification before christ came paul was saying there were people who had faith There were people who lived by faith under law. In fact, there's this incredible verse in Romans 11 when Paul's writing to He he refers back to this time with the confrontation with Baal. And um, he says this, um, quoting, he says, I have kept for myself, the Lord speaking to Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee knee to Baal. There were 7,000 men of faith still in Israel who hadn't succumbed to uh, Ahab and Jezebel in in bowing their knee to Baal. And so faith has come means that by God's grace, many Gentiles have responded to God's word in faith. Faith has come. If you are in this room today and you believe Jesus is your Savior and you accept in your heart, faith has come to you because you cannot accept Jesus without faith. You cannot believe Jesus died, was buried, was, rose from the dead, ascended to the heaven, and seated at the right hand of the Father without faith. Because we weren't there when they drove the nails in. We weren't there when they laid him in the tomb. We weren't there when the stone was rolled away. We weren't there when he went to the Mount of Ascension with his disciples. We weren't there when he walked with them 40 days after, after his death. Um, but we believe... Our life is grounded in every single one of those facts of reality. We are here. Faith has come to us because we do believe Jesus is the Son of God. We do believe he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. We do believe that he walked on this earth and was fully tempted in everywhere that we are, fully tempted as a man. He set his deity aside so that he could overcome sin, by overcoming sin, he died as a pure, sinless sacrifice for our sin, the final price paid. And, and because he died, he was buried. And because he rose from the dead, and because he ascended to the Father, we believe all of that by faith. That is counted unto us as faith. And so we, therefore, are Abraham's seed. And if we are Abraham's seed, then we are the recipients of the inheritance promised to Abraham faith has come it means the, the the promises given to the prophets about giving new hearts listen to what he said to Ezekiel I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and give you a heart of flesh. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So if the gospel wasn't accompanied by the convicting of the Holy Spirit, it would keep us under sin just like the law did. If we simply listened to the gospel and we felt the gospel as the law, many people believe the gospel is a list of do's and don'ts. They don't hear the gospel as the love of God displayed in his son. They hear it as you can't do this, you can't do that, you shouldn't do this, you mustn't do that. You must live a certain way or you're not considered to be righteous or you're not considered to be a Christian. Living by faith in Christ is living evidence that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, faith has come even to us. We are one in Christ. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And there's no more need for a custodian. We're no longer under the custodian of the law. We're no longer oppressed by God's demands that we within ourselves have no power to fulfill. Bless Israel's heart, if I can say that. I mean, they were given an impossible task to keep the law the Ten Commandments, to, to keep all the statutes. And, and if they could do it, and here's what God knew. He knew they couldn't. If they could do it, he wouldn't have had to include the means by which you can have your sins covered by the blood of a lamb. If he thought Israel could keep the law, there would be no need for the sacrifice. There would be no need for the pouring out of blood. Because he would say, look, you can do it, we're fine. But he knew they couldn't. So he said, here's the means by which you can cover up your sin. And it became more and more ritual. The Day of Atonement became. And today, the Day of Atonement is is a joke. You just sit around on the Day of Atonement as a Jew, and you think of all the wrong things you did this year, and you think of all the good things you did this year, and and you make sure that the good outweigh the bad, and therefore, you're good for another year. And And that was the whole issue of the scapegoat. The Day of Atonement, there were two goats. They'd kill one. They'd take the blood of the one, put it on the other. They'd send this goat out of the wilderness, and they'd have people stationed on the way. And once the goat was out of sight, out of distance, Israel believed their sins had been removed from them for a year. That scapegoat had taken their sin out of the midst of them. And that became ritual. It no longer became faith. We don't, we're not under that custodian anymore. We're not under that bondage. We come to God through faith in Christ and by grace and by the confession of our sin and the blood of Jesus washing away our sin, we are able to enter into the throne room of the Most High and have fellowship with him. So Paul then goes on to say in verses 1 through 11 that the thing that keeps us in this struggle of faith is the influence we allow demons to have in our life now paul doesn't say demons he says gods other gods but there's only one god Uh, the god of this world satan has many minions and if you look at now he's talking to people who were of roman and greek background and they had many 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 gods that they worshipped many who but any, any God who says they are God and is not Jehovah is demonic. So listen to what, I'm going to read this passage real quick, and then we're going to look at what Paul means. So chapter 4, um, and I'm going to jump right into verse 3. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world, but when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the spirit of adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay? Um, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir of God through Christ. But here's the problem, he says. But then indeed, when you did not know God, You serve those which, by nature, are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe the days and the months and the seasons and the years I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. So Paul said, you were set free by the one true living God, but now you're being enticed to go back and to accept the practices that you did with other gods. Remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt? The Lord, they had to leave all of their idols behind, leave everything behind. They'd go. Abraham was introducing them again to who God was after 400 years of bondage. But every time Israel got into a tough spot, what did they want to do? They wanted to go back to Egypt. Every time, they forgot what the 400 years of oppression and bondage were like because they couldn't handle a little inconvenience. You know, they said, we want the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. We are tired of manna. They wanted to continually go back. And Paul says, here's what you guys are doing. You have received the truth of who God is, and yet you keep wanting to turn again to the weak and beggarly elements. In other words, you want to go back to demonic influence and allow that to be the standard by which you live as opposed to the standards of what the Word of God says. So there are evil spirits who oppose God, who blind the minds of unbelievers and do their best to deceive us. And one of the big problems in the church today is the deception that the church is embracing as truth. And I'm not going to go down the list. I'll look at a few things while we go. Jesus Jesus took demons seriously. He didn't when when demons were talked about, when they showed up, Jesus didn't yeah, go, "Come on, are you serious?" Every time somebody brought a demoniac or every time he encountered a demoniac, Jesus took the influence of that ungodly God, and he addressed it so. And so we think, you know, we find it hard to take seriously in our culture demonic because really our culture kind of, I don't want to say worships it, but we really prop it up. Um, I, I am... I never did understand horror flicks, why, why people like those things with demons. But there's a, there's a show on TV, I haven't watched it, I won't watch it, but the commercials, doesn't matter what channel you're on, the commercials come up and the show is called Evil. What's the name of the show? And the premise of the show is that, yeah, you may think that you're battling lawbreakers, but you're battling demons. And so they bring this priest to come along and help these cops as they encounter these people who are breaking the law who are really demonic. And and just the commercials look evil, but here's the reality. That is true, but our culture wants us to see it as fantasy. They want us to see it as something that only appears on a TV screen or a movie screen, but it's not really going on. And so we think the kinds of strange supernatural manifestations typically demons are for movies, are for TV shows, and they're not. If, if we reject the reality, we reject the counsel of Jesus and his apostles. Every main, fo- all the main named apostles, okay, there are many, there are 12 of them, but listen to what Jesus and what James, Peter, and John all say about demons in our day, our age, our culture. Jesus says this, if by the finger of God I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus said casting out demons eliminates the God of the earth and interjects the kingdom of God. If you cast out a demon, when that demon's removed, the kingdom of God comes upon you. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Everybody knows this verse, but I don't know how many people take it seriously. We do not wrestle, contend with, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Peter writes, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. The devil's looking for somebody to consume. James, the brother of Jesus, says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. John says, every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you heard that it was coming, and now it is in the world already. John said this 2,000 years ago, that the spirit of Antichrist isn't coming sometime in the future. The spirit of Antichrist is here already. In in the pre, and I say pre-scientific first century, because let's face it, we have, we know so much scientifically that the first century did not know, the followers of Jesus didn't know. But in this pre-scientific first century, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul, under divine inspiration, exposed a typical demonic scheme. And here's what it is. Because the scheme is very prevalent today in the 21st century. Demonic influence is clean, it is moral, it is religious, and it is hellish. Understand this. If the devil was showing up every day the way he's depicted in movies, the way he's depicted in TV shows, people would stay away if that was reality. But what he does is he convinces that what they see is not reality. They can, he convinces people just live a moral life, just live a clean life, live a religious life, go to church. You know, quote Bible scriptures. Satan says, I love Bible scriptures. I used them when I talked to Jesus. Quote them. But all of that, without faith and without believing believing that there is a battle going on, all of that is hellish because it causes us to reject the evil influence that's actually taking place. So we don't turn back from Christ and become slaves of demons again, Dave. right right it is true third world countries experience demonic on a much different level than we they they recognize it you know differently than we do so when you do not know god or you didn't know god you're in bondage to beings that by nature are not gods We need to understand without Jesus, we are in bondage and we're in bondage to something or someone we're in bondage. You know, Paul says the battle is with spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. People, your friends that you know, your friends who accept culture over scripture are in bondage. And they're held in bondage, and they can't break the chains because they don't know what the Word of God says, and they don't have faith that the Word of God is true, that it's real. Paul doesn't deny that these things exist. What he denies is that they have a nature which qualifies them to be called gods. He says there's only one God. You can't call anything else God. There's only one God. When he writes to the Church of Corinth, he says, For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things. Though he doesn't like the titles they carry, Paul admits that these so-called gods or lords do exist, and he makes clear that they are demons. 1 Corinthians 10.20. What pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be partners with demons. I mean he he doesn't soft soap it. He says if you're not serving God, you're serving the God of this world, you are serving the demonic. And he's saying that formerly these Gentile Christians had not known the true God, and they were enslaved to demons. And he says, that was your prior life. Now that you know the true God, why do you want to go back? Why do you want to go back to what he says, these weak, beggarly elements? He's saying these demons are nothing compared to the power of the living God. And so... These demons exercise their powers through religious practices. The danger was that these Gentiles might turn back, become enslaved again after receiving freedom in Christ. And Paul says in in Galatians 4, 9, this is what it says in the Revised Standard Version. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak, beggarly, elemental spirits whose slaves you want to be once more. So you were once in slavery to these demonic beings. How is it you want to turn back to these demonic beings? And what Paul's saying is anytime, time, and we need to listen closely to this, anytime we turn around and we pick up something that is not of the kingdom of God, and not of the Word of God, we are picking up something that is empowered and that is propagated by the demonic. The church has allowed demonic influence to come in under the name of culture, under the name of relevance. That in order for us to be relevant, in order for us to be accepted by culture, we need to change the way we look. now. Look, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If we were all in here on Sunday morning wearing suits and ties, and the women had buns on their heads and dresses to the floor, and we didn't allow any musical instruments in, and we only sang a cappella, and we only sang hymns, and we only da-da-da, there would be nothing enticing because we would look like, who in the world wants to live in that cult? We, we, but we, what happened here today was not culture. What happened here today was heaven heaven touched earth or or better yet we became elevated since his ways are higher his thoughts are higher in worship we come up to that sea of glass and we participate with the heavenly hosts in this great antiphonal chorus that's going around the throne for all eternity what happens here is not a show it's jesus being made not culture what happens here is the reality and the relevance of Jesus being made alive as we worship the one true living God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And our responsibility is to look like heaven, not to look like earth. Um, I don't not want to be, nor do I want to be on the uh, Kanye bandwagon, but um, I am, I, I watched, two days ago, I watched him in Texas go to a prison, take his choir into a prison. And even though he was using music of today's culture, Everything about it was about Jesus. And I watched men and women break down in tears, break down in repentance, because Kanye brought the gospel to them. He brought Jesus to them. He didn't bring a show to them. He didn't bring culture to them. He brought a style to them that they could relate to, and these people were falling on their face and weeping before God, hearts broken, and, and, and encountered by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to understand that there is a contending for the heart of Christians, for the heart of the religious even today, and the demons are active. Bible tells us. I'm not making this up. The Bible says Satan still goes into the throne room. He still goes into the throne room, and he goes for one reason and one reason alone, and that is to accuse you. He goes before the Father to make accusations against you. He is actively trying everything he can to stop the message of the gospel from being spread so that the kingdom of God has authority over the kingdom of earth. And the the message that wins every time, we cannot forget. The message is love. We just love people the way Jesus loves us, and we watch hearts and lives be transformed. And so we walk in righteousness. We, we cannot let sin find an opportunity to have its way in our heart and life. We have to be prepared. So I'm jumping down to the last part of page four. Um, just let me say this satan doesn't care if you try to keep the ten commandments he wants you to try really hard he wants you to really really try because he wants you to take credit for it he wants you to say well today i did not covet today i didn't kill anybody you know i didn't even step on an ant today today i respected all life he wants us to look at keeping the Ten commandments and our own power, and, and he'll assist you in your moral resolve to do so. He will gladly help you to work hard to keep the King of Commandments, to keep the law. And he doesn't care if you come to the prayer room, he doesn't care if you teach Sunday school, he doesn't care if you go feed and witness to homeless people, he doesn't care if you lobby to end abortion, he doesn't care if you wanna put prayer back in schools. He is in favor of a moral agenda that we take credit for. He likes nothing better than for us to say, well, I teach Sunday school. Or, well, I feed the homeless. Or, well, I stand in front of abortion clinics and carry signs. He, he loves morality. What he doesn't love is people who walk in the power of the cross. So we cannot be on un- and for the declaration of the love of God to shine through So we cannot be unprepared because he is a clever guy. Listen again to these four verses. I'm going to close with these. I just read them. When we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. So here's the good news. When the right time came, it says this, but when the time had fully come, when the appointed time came, God looked down on the world under the dominion of Satan. He said, this is it. And I kind of put this, my wife and I have been watching World War II movies. Um, We went and saw Midway in the theater and then went and rented the old Midway to see how the two compare. Um, Yes, it is. Um, But anyway, so I kind of looked at God as a commander and his son as the one directly under him. And this is what God said, when the time came, according to this, he says, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. This is how I picture God saying, prepare for the invasion. The artillery of the enemy will be heavy. In fact, before you get very far on the beach, you will be killed. But I'll raise you from the dead And the beachhead you establish will spread until it invades every tongue, tribe, and nation. And I will free town after town from slavery to demons and slavery to the law. And we will draw into our movement all those who trust in you, my son. And we'll send your spirit to empower them and bring them up to glory. And they will be my children and heirs of everything I have. Satan will be vanquished. All unbelievers will be banished into outer darkness. And our glory will fill the earth like the water covers the sea. That's, that's our mandate. That's who we are. If we live this, we're never going to drift back into the slavery of self-righteousness. We live in the inheritance as the sons and daughters of the Most High. And that's what Paul wanted them to know, and that's what Paul wants us to know. There was a great album by Keith Green called So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. And every song on that album is about the church, about people who have tasted of the goodness of the Lord, but all of a sudden are enticed by the things of this world, and they want to go back. And that's Satan's great ploy. If he can keep us self-righteous, and in that process, he's got us right where he wants us. He does not want us to walk in the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't want us to walk in the righteousness of faith. He wants us to walk in our own righteousness. If he can get us to be really moral, really religious people... Then he's got us right where he wants us because he knows that is not the source of our power. The source of our power is faith in Jesus and what he did. And so, Father, set this on our hearts. May we walk in this understanding, God, that we are no longer, we no longer need an ad- someone over us to make sure we obey the law because Jesus set us free from that, and now we walk in grace. And we keep the great command, which is the fulfillment of all the law, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we love our neighbor as ourselves, and that our testimony will be that we are the disciples of God because of our love. Lord, we pray that that will be our message, that everything we do, we do to the glory of your name, not to the glory of our own name, and we do with this one thing in mind, that we might bring others to an understanding of the inheritance that is theirs through Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.